0: Hi, and welcome to the Reef Roundup podcast, where we dive into marine conservation stories from around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Graham. And I'm Tamara, and we can't wait to dive into this episode.
1: Join us and meet some of the many amazing people who are doing exciting work to save the ocean for future generations with a focus on restoration, ecology, and environment.
0: We hope today's show is a wake-up call, but also brings you both hope and inspiration as you learn about the amazing work that's being done and how you too can be an ocean champion.
2: Let's get started.
1: Welcome back to the second part of our interview with Dr. Iris Ziegler. For all of those who tuned into the first part, you know what an amazing, inspiring, and super knowledgeable person she is, here representing uh, her work with Shark Project and just what an amazing organization that is as well if you haven't yet listened to that first episode please definitely check it out it it makes sense as a transition into this so highly recommend starting with that one uh yeah let's kick it off here we go Okay, next question, and this this has been something that's been on my mind since watching, actually, the, the movie Seaspiracy. So we have organizations, right, like the Marine Stewardship Council, which are supposedly ensuring that the fish we consume, which are certified by them, are sustainably caught, and that they come from populations that are sustainably managed. But there's been significant, you know, I guess, questions raised about that by uh, both research um, into practices related to these certifications, as well as documentaries, like I said, um, such as Seaspiracy, which if anyone hasn't seen it, check it out. It's on Netflix. It's fantastic. What is your take on sustainable fishing generally? Is there such a thing? Is aquaculture a viable alternative? And what do you think of these certification organizations?
2: Oh, my pleasure to talk about that because this is one of the at the moment this is what I'm almost working eight hours a day on because there is a like a critical uh, time frame at the moment for the uh, makes uh, the MSC uh, label because there's a standard review which is uh, just ongoing right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, let me start a bit differently. You mentioned Spiracy and I think this it's not a documentary, but this. Um, really changed the attitude and the um, how to say the perception of a lot of people who before that had not really been interested in the ocean, and it was like an eye opener. What is going on there? And I think just for that, Seaspiracy is brilliant. I love it. There are flaws in it. It's not all true what they are saying. They are not, they didn't get all of the facts right. And a few of the things they put out there is like, well, I know those people and I know what they try to do. This is not the truth, but really for creating this awareness, we have an emergency out there. We have a crisis out there and this is great. And also identifying that fishery is the reason for the crisis i would not agree that there is no sustainable fishing possible because there is and i mean if there wouldn't be then i can stop working i can stop engaging because then i'm doomed or um, mankind is doomed. but there can be and this is what we really need to achieve so for me the conclusion is not as they said stop eating fish or as the um then narrator said, "I like, and uh, he's gonna stop it. I think we don't uh, personally, I don't eat fish, but this is not uh, what needs to happen. Uh, but we need to eat fish differently. We need to value it differently. It's something special. It's a treat. It's got to have a price. And then if it is sourced responsibly sustainably, and, uh, sold at a, a good price, then the ones that are actually fishing it, they can work sustainable because then they are only fishing a certain number and not just getting, as I said, at the beginning, as much as possible, as cheap as possible. So sustainable fishing is possible per se, but we are far from being there. And especially the MSC label, the, the Marine Stewardship council label, uh, is tricky because it is one of the most recognized labels, especially in Europe. I mean, it's almost everywhere. It could have a huge impact. It could be really a game changer. And I mean, this is what it started off uh, back then when it was founded. Uh, But unfortunately, they've also realized this is a good way to make money. So they are focusing on growth on uh, on certifying more and more fisheries. And then obviously the more fisheries you want to certify, you have to be a bit more relaxed on like how sustainable they really are. And you don't really always look as closely as you should. And the biggest problem really with this is that they have a standard, they have a standard which describes like what needs to be fulfilled by other or uh, complied with by a fishery in order to be awarded with the MSC label. And unfortunately this standard is not good enough and it's far from being good enough. It's a nightmare for anything which is a bycatch, wanted or unwanted, uh what is a habitat impact. And there it's just not delivering what it promised. And this is where we need to have changing. And this is what happens right now because they released their new standard after almost four years of preparation work. Not three years, to be fair. It's, it's going to be four years by the time they, they publish it at the end of the year. But um, yeah, this has been uh, published and they made it look like they listened to us. And when I say listen to us, I'm referring to another MSC, because there's uh, a coalition called Make Stewardship Count. Okay. And can
1: you tell us a little bit about that other organization, Make Marine Stewardship Count? We'll be sure to link to them too in the show notes.
2: Yeah. So MSC, the other MSC, and we've given the Marine Stewardship Council a list of requirements of improvements, which we wanted to see. Uh, addressed in this new standard. And we've actually done that in 2018 already. And this is by now a coalition with more than 90 organizations, scientists, uh, even business, NGOs, all saying the same thing. These are the improvements that need to be made. And now on February 2nd, MSC has actually published their new standard and claimed they listened to us. they did what we wanted to, to be uh, wanted them to do. And now we need to verify that they really do it because it sounds good when you look at the, the glossy labels, it's like they are going to introduce, for example, fins naturally attached as a prerequisite to all certifications
1: Just a quick note for our listeners. so fins naturally attached. This refers to the fact that there's just a huge trade in shark fins. And so oftentimes you'll have fishermen who go out when they capture sharks, either their aim is to capture sharks, or maybe they're caught as bycatch. They can store a lot more, right? If they're just keeping the fins, which are the highest value element generally of a shark and throw the rest of the body overboard so the fins naturally attached means that when they bring back sharks that has to be the whole shark it can't just be the fins that they're bringing back which puts a higher basically cost on them capturing and fishing for sharks or you know if they're if sharks are from bycatch and they if they want to sell those fins they have to hold the whole shark in their storage area, which is obviously taking a lot of space from other um, potential things they could be fishing for. So again, this is kind of like a a, a policy term uh, mostly, but has a lot of really big implications. And we've seen a lot of progress actually around the world uh, in the last year or two to uh, get... Countries uh, s- signing up to do fins naturally attached. So continuing on,
2: so no fishery can be certified anymore if they are interacting with sharks. Obviously, if they don't have things naturally attached in place, but then the devil is in the detail because then you have to look into this. The um, the uh yet yeah, the small text they have a, a guidance. They have a separate toolbox. And you have to interpret all of this together to see the loopholes they get in. And first of all, I thought like, well, thank you, you've listened to us. And now that I've really gone through all of the 500 pages, I found the loopholes and uh, colleagues of mine, they've been looking for what they did to marine mammals, what they did to habitats. So it's in all of the aspects, but with finning really, they require fins naturally, Great. But then they go like, well, the certification agent, they call it CAP, it's up to them to decide what they use as evidence that there is really a FINS naturally attached policy in place. So in other words, if I'm a fishery and say, I have a policy, a code of conduct that we have fins naturally attached, here's our paper. And the certifier goes, oh, great, tick the box. Okay. You have a monitoring program. are yeah, Perfect. Wonderful. And then they get certified and they don't even have to improve in that anymore, but there's nobody to check. Are they really complying with it? How much monitoring do they have? What kind of monitoring? And what is the, the incidences that been recorded in the past? So really complying with it. This is unfortunately at the moment, not included. And this is what we now have to push for that they need to revise it prior to publishing the final version and really include that there is not just a policy in place, but it is monitored that there is really truly compliance existing with this uh, policy. So that's just one example, but there's so many others with the MSC, it could be a great tool. Unfortunately, so far it's not yet. So this is uh, this is my daily work at the moment.
1: <laughs> well, it's it's so good to hear that there's people like you, Dr. Iris, working on making sure that these certifying organizations are actually being held accountable for not just giving a stamp of approval, but actually that meaning something behind the scenes too. And I think most of us have long assumed that it did mean something um, and, and just recently realized how uh, inaccurate that assumption might have been. So I, I'm happy that uh, someone's holding their feet to the fire, so to speak. Moving on, if we could talk a little bit more about some of the successes that Shark Project has had, that would be great. I, I know there's been... um. Some legislation uh, on the United Nations level it has to do with Finns naturally attached. Also, some big moves forward with Mako sharks. So, if you could dive a little bit into that, that'd be fantastic.
2: And there's one maybe if I just because I need to share that with you, your <laughs> your listeners actually because it is it's really one of the biggest successes we've had. Like as a community, I'm not saying Shark Project, but all of us who contributed to that. And Graham, you mentioned that. Mako shark, Isurus oxyrhynchus, and this, well, yeah, this is the Latin. With sharks, you always have to be Latin. <laughs> so I'm glad I had Latin at school. <laughs> but, uh, really, this is the fastest shark in our oceans. It's an amazing shark. It's not necessarily the prettiest shark. It looks a bit grim, but it's an amazing animal. And it's like the the little brother of the great white. And obviously um, they're both mackerel sharks, so in the same family, and it's really, it's a shark, which is actually at the doorsteps of our, of our lives living in the um, Northern hemisphere because it's in the Atlantic and it should be one of the top predators there. It should be one of the, uh, the species keeping the ecosystem in balance. But unfortunately, it's also a shark that is highly priced, not just for its fins, but also for its meat. And that's quite unusual because most sharks are not really good or uh, targeted for the meat because it's not really tasty and uh, people don't want it. But meku is different because meiku almost, and I can't tell you from own experience because I've never tasted it, but everybody says it tastes like swordfish so if you think you have a swordfish steak it might be mako because mako is cheaper for the fish for like the restaurant to sell it and uh probably most people don't uh don't taste the difference and then on top on top of that the, the fins are very valuable so, so fisheries and especially european fisheries in the atlantic have started about yeah, twenty years ago they started really targeting sharks. They target, uh, been targeting the blue sharks and the mako. And mako, then at one point everybody realized it's overfished. We are losing that um, stock in the Atlantic, and so then this commission that is responsible for the Atlantic came up with, well, we have to stop targeting it. So you can't target that species. But of course, if it's a bycatch and if that bycatch is already dead, you know, you, you hold in your long lines and this is how you catch the, these are trucks with long lines. You hold them in and there's the makers on the hooks, but they are already dead. So of course we don't want to generate waste so you can keep them and you sell them. And surprise, surprise. What do you think? What happened? Well, <laughs> yeah, they're all dead. So they were saying, oh, they're all dead. You know, we fall in the lines and they're all dead. So we have to keep them. (laughs) Observers told us, no, no, no. They are not dead. They are alive. And there's been scientific studies that demonstrate if they are released and if the fisheries use best practice releasing them, a, a big percentage of them survives. So it would be really helpful if the fisheries throw back, well, release them, basically cut uh, the lines and don't uh, retain those sharks. But obviously the fisheries didn't want to do that because it's valuable, you know, it's money. So they argued in all kinds of ways that they can continue keeping them. And it really took us since 2017. And this is when there was first time confirmed that those sharks are overfished and the stock is about to collapse. And then the scientists from the fishery com- uh, commission, they as uh, recommended to have a retention ban, which means you can't keep any shark, whether dead or alive, on board. You have to release it. But the fisheries didn't want that, so they were fighting for, well, since two thousand and seventeen to have all kind of other agreements, but not a retention ban. And last year, finally, after all of that with a lot of joint effort and actually I have to say also with help from retailers because they started calling. We were calling for the who. we were calling together with other organizations like Make Time for MECO, Make or Break for MECO, all these things <laughs> and it really worked. We had um, delegations, so countries that supported it, like the UK and Canada and Gabon and Senegal. So really responsible nations that said, no, stop. We have to stop doing that. We want this. We wanna listen to the signs, but unfortunately the European union and the US, those two nations were the biggest counterparts. And it took us those five years altogether uh, to finally get an agreement that for now, For the next two years, they can't retain any shots, any maker shots in the move. And after that, there will be a very limited possibility, like maximum of 200 tons. And they have to include all the mortality. So all discards there will be accounted for those 250 tons. And when you know that the EU alone has been catching 1,200 tons. So if in future, the total mortality is limited at 250, basically they can't retain anything. And this is what we hope if this stays, then the make who has a chance. It's not a guarantee, but it's a chance this stock can rebuild. And for this year, we have to tackle the South because in the, at the South, um, there's still no limit. So just to give you a little bit of a death story, we need to get also protection for the species in the southern atlantic yes keeping fingers crossed if they do the reporting correctly and if the reporting is uh, complied with then we won't have retention in the north <laughs> fingers <So>. crossed <laughs> fingers crossed yeah and mm-hmm. it's really a key approach i made mean, the shark Leaks been uh, pushing for it a lot of german ngos and even NGOs that normally don't work on sharks, that we've all been like, we have to make that happen, and we were bombarding the EU and the US uh, from both sides of the Atlantic, really. And I have to give credit to the US; they at one point turned around, and then you the really had to face they were like they were the only one tr- still trying to push for being able to uh, to land them. And they weren't anything but happy. But hopefully, and this is what I'm really hoping for, that they will take it as a challenge now because they they sold it as a big improvement in conservation in their press release. So we're hoping that they are serious about it. And now why not have the EU being the champion for a retention ban also in the South? That would be my my wish, my <laughs> prayer for this year. Let's see whether there's somebody up there listening to my prayer. It's what we have to push.
0: (laughs) Right. So we've talked a lot about the challenges to the health of shark populations and also some strategies that can help turn things around, like this ecosystem-based approach to fishing and, of course, the success of the Mako shark. So I guess I just wanted to ask, how hopeful are you for... For what's to come in the future.
2: Oh well, that is <laughs> what asking me to take out my crystal uh crystal sphere or <laughs> say it like look at the yeah it gives ball <laughs> thanks. Yeah, exactly. The crystal ball and be the witch of <laughs> saying it <laughs> like this is what happens. I mean to say it straight away, we have about maximum ten years left. If we don't do to turn the tide within that time frame, it's gonna be too late, and it's gonna be too late forever. Because if we if we don't manage to do it by then, we lose so many species, we have so many stocks collapsing, that the ecosystem is just not gonna be able to combat the climate crisis. I mean, you have to know that oceans are absorbing a lot of the carbon dioxide, which is triggering the climate crisis, right? So if we lose the ocean as the buffer for that, and if we lose the ocean regulating the climate with the currents, they regulate, I mean, the oceans are everything for this planet. And if we lose a a vital and healthy ocean, then we won't have a chance. So those 10 years are vital. If we don't make it the consequences are really going to be fierce. So we have to make it. We must make it. And this is why I believe we can do it. It's not impossible. You know, if it be something like we have a pandemic in the ocean, then I would really not know what to do. But this is fisheries. It's man made. So man, mankind should be able to to solve the problem. And there is sustainable fishing, there is ecosystem-based fishery, it's possible. So it just needs the will. The will, the political will, and the willingness of people to comply with this political will to do it. And I think the more people are pushing for it, and also it's really up to everybody as a consumer, not just us as NGOs, but all your listeners out there. And this would be really my pledge to, well, not pledge, so my, my ask, like, please, please, can you all help us to turn the tide? Because every fish you buy out there, you make a decision. Do I buy a fish that's been caught one by one, which is sustainable, but it costs maybe five, six times as much? Or do I go for a cheap fish, 99 cents? But then I, ex- I just accept, I don't care whether it's killing so many sharks, dolphins, whales. It's destroying habitat and it's really destroying, depleting our ocean. So it's really up to us and we can make that change happening. And I really hope uh, that we together can do it. And just to give you a glimpse of hope, when we activate people out there and we've seen it can work, we've just managed actually to achieve uh, 1.2 million votes in the EU in a EU citizen initiative, which is basically a referendum, not quite, but you could compare it with that. So EU citizens have the possibility to say we want that. And then if enough vote, the EU parliament has to deal with it. And they all voted for an end of the shark fin trade in the EU. So prohibiting it to cut the fins as I just said, like they are cutting off the fins in the port and then just put the uh, shark into fish meal and they won't be able to do that anymore because then they have to leave the fins attached during export. So they they can only export the whole shark to China or to Hong Kong or whatever. And it really has been those people voting for it that been triggering, turning the tide. If we achieve it, I mean, it's not, it's not secured yet. There's still a legislation. There's a lot to do, but it's the first step. So we see we can do things, and we can do them together. And this is what I would really hope: your listeners, your, uh, your people out there are are hope what well, are willing to engage and be part of it.
1: And what are some good ways that? people who, you know, they're listening to this interview, and they want to either know more about Shark Project or to engage, like you said, and, you know, be part of helping to identify uh challenges, find solutions, etc. when it comes to sharks in the ocean, what would your recommendations be for them?
2: Of course, you can help us. Uh, join us on social media. We have an active Twitter account in English. so no excuses (laughs) here, join us, share our tweets, retweet, because this is the good side of social media. And I'm pretty old already for social media, I have to admit, but I (laughs) learned to use Twitter because this is how you can share good messages. So all welcome, join us on our project. Yes.
0: Dr. Iris, I would like to ask what your favorite shark species is and why they're your favorite, <laughs> and if you can tell us any experiences that you've had with them.
2: Yeah, I mean, really my favorite is, and you probably would think it's the Mako because I'm fighting for it so far that I love Makos. They're really amazing. But I can't really say why, but in the early days already, I've been very much Affect uh, like really uh, feeling a strong connection to one shark species, and I call it the ladies of the shorts. It's the silky sharks, Carcharhinus falciformis, and this shark is just—I mean, as the name silk tells you—it is elegant. It's an amazing creature, and when you see them in the ocean, they almost like swimming silk. They shimmer. They and they are really beautiful animals, and they are also interesting animals. I mean, in two ways because they are they are threatened, and it used to be the most abandoned shark tropical waters, but now they are threatened. They are uh, classified by the Red List of IUCN as vulnerable. They are listed on uh, the CITES list uh, because they are so depleted. And the reason why they are so depleted is they are a big bycatch in a lot of fisheries and they are targeted for their fins. So if you go to the, um, Hong Kong shark fin trade markets, you'll find mostly two species, blue sharks and silky sharks. So this is why I also feel for them. I mean, they are beautiful and they are suffering and they are also really interesting when you watch them, when you just take time. If you watch silkies hunting, and they love being around tuna schools, and they hunt the school, tuna school. It's just amazing how they are like, almost like an arrow of, um, chucking in and it's just really amazing watching them and they are beautiful. So yeah, they, those, is, those are my favorites. And they almost take as long as humans uh, before they can have their first babies. So a silky, shark lady needs to be about 20 years old before she can have her first baby. So very much akin of us, right?
0: Do you you have any last words or thoughts that you would like to leave our listeners with? or (laughs) Do you personally have any advice for people who want to become more involved in marine conservation who maybe didn't start out studying it or something like that?
2: Oh, um, actually, thanks a lot for asking that. Yes, absolutely. Please. And again, it's not like you can't do anything. Everybody can make a difference. And um, I mean, I'm from, by my training, I'm a pharmacist. I work in the conservation lab. And at Child Project, we have a lot of people with different backgrounds. Everybody engages and helps with their specific skills. So if you are interested in joining us, we are open for any help. We appreciate all help. And, but I mean, there's also organization, other organizations out there, but engage, find out how you can uh, contribute with your skills, use your skills and your talents to do ocean conservation. And I can tell you it's very rewarding because then if you go out at the end of the day and you go out diving or snorkeling and you see those beautiful underwater world you see those amazing animals and whether it's sharks or uh, dolphins or whales in that aspect doesn't really matter and this is really the biggest reward for what you do you see you are making a contribution to preserving that so yeah please join us Um, of course you can always always donate money and help organizations but Don't feel like you can't do anything. You can make a difference. And there's people that can do social media, that can do all kinds of skill sets, like uh, giving speeches, uh, produce beautiful movies. All of that helps. And if you have great pictures you want to share with us, always very welcome. We can use all kinds of pictures. The pretty and the ugly, I would say, as a last word. (laughs) But also showing not just the beauty, but the brutal true and this is what conspiracy did i think it is important because other than on land like if i want to find out the meat i'm eating like how are these animals kept i can go out there and see where they come from or the chicken i can't do that with fish so it's really important that people see what happens out there and go diving if yes, eats, yes. Pos- <laughs> go diving what is this <laughs> You have to see it. It's just the most amazing thing you can do. And I hope I'll be back in the water soon now after COVID. I always feel like a fish on land. <laughs> I think it's the same for the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to go to the coral.
1: <laughs> well, Dr. Iris, I think that wraps up our time with you. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. You're your work, your mission, and just the joy and uh, passion that you bring to it are definitely very inspiring. And I, I'm excited to get this episode out onto the podcast so uh, we can share it with even more people. Thank you again.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's been so really fun talking to you and sharing my passion with you. and. I really hope I could kind of inspire some of the people out there to think about it and experience what you can do and see those amazing underwater universe. See it, feel it, and think something to uh, preserve it. Thank you so much.
1: This wraps up the second part of our interview with Dr. Iris Ziegler. We loved having her on the show. If you haven't had the chance yet to listen to part one, of our interview with her highly encourage you to check that out and you will find links to uh, shark projects website uh, twitter account etc in the show notes so please follow up with them if you're feeling super inspired and want to go save the sharks do it uh they'll be waiting for you we'll be seeing you soon
0: Thank you for joining us for another edition of the Reef Roundup podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode.
1: Please take a moment and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: And don't forget to add us on Instagram at Reef Roundup for news about the ocean, inspiring stories, and more.
1: You can also find more about us as well as our guests at reefroundup.com.
0: We release a new episode every two weeks. See See you you soon. (laughs)